0: Brothers and sisters, if you would turn in your copy of scripture to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter, but I'd like for you to also have your thumb in 1 Peter chapter 2. There's a reason for that because if you look at our our first word of chapter 3 verse 1, we see the word likewise. Likewise, he's He's basically continuing what he had been previously saying in, the first, in, in, in chapter 2, in the previous chapter. And so we know that this is a continuation of that. Specifically, these commands that are in the first nine verses of chapter 3 are a continuance of what we see in verse 11 of chapter 2. And that says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. You hear Jesus there? See your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we saw that we were born again, but then he says, this is how you are to conduct yourselves in the world. This is how you're to walk and talk and act like a person who has been born again. It's even clearer that this chapter 3 is a continuation of what comes previous. Because the first command that we see in verse 1 of being subject, we also see it in verse 13, don't we? Be subject. I I want you to hear the whole context of this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor, and remember this is Nero, this is an evil emperor, to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And then he gives the reason for being subject. This is the undergirding reason of why he's telling Christians throughout The dispersion to be subject to every human institution. He says, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, the whole point of these commands of being subject to every human institution is to silence foolish people. Now, this term foolish people is a technical word used in Scripture, and it should call to mind passages in Proverbs That the fool says in his heart there is no God and the fool lives his life as though God is not the center of his life. And his orbit is lived in accord with how he thinks he should be living as opposed to how God has told him to live. That's a fool. And so, so Peter is telling us. To silence the fool by our conduct. Live our lives in a different way than the way the world lives. Live our lives in an orbit that is around God as Lord. Do this for the Lord's sake. Right? He says this in verse 16. Again, I'm still in chapter 2. I'm setting up the context for chapter 3. But chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants. Of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So whenever we're told to be subject to someone else, it's not out of a sense of not just wanting to rock the boat. Peter's not like, hey, I don't want to, you know, mess up the status quo. That's that's not the point. No, what 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 Peter's doing here is he's challenging us to display a revolutionary spirit in Christianity. A gentle revolutionary spirit. And I say gentle because we always don't have to turn the tables. We always don't have to throw stuff around. We always don't have to yell. So there's a gentleness to Christianity, but there's a revolutionary spirit to Christianity as well. Because it's revolutionary to live free even though you're a slave. Remember, that was the context of chapter 2. He was saying, slaves, be subject to your own masters. But they're to live free. right? Because even though they are socially bound to a master, they can brush off the world's values. They can say, yeah, you may be my master now, but I have one true master. I am a servant of God, ultimately. And the reason why I am being subject to you is because I am ultimately being subject to God. Now I started here because it's easy to simply launch into these commands of chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, without reading them in a larger context and purpose of what it means to be a subject to someone else. See, whereas last week we were told to grow up into salvation by priesting up, I hope you've been using that term with each other about, hey, Priest up, you know. I hope you've been doing that, uh, whether it's through text or phone calls. But we're further shown of what it means to be a mature believer by growing up into salvation. If you have ears to hear it, to mature yourself, to grow up into salvation, this is what we are to do. And so, the main point of our passage of this chapter is this: be zealous for the good, like Jesus. That's the main point of our passage today. Be zealous for the good like Jesus. Notice I said for the good, and I'm using that particularly because we're going to see that in our passage, the good. The good is a reference all the way back to creation when God saw all that he had made and he said, "It's good." It's good. It's good. It's the way it's supposed to be. So, we're going to get at this main point by looking at two points or two two ways. Of informing how we are to be zealous for the good like Jesus. First we're going to see commands. This is the first point. Commands for mature and free living. Commands that Peter gives us for mature and free living. And then secondly we're going to look at zeal for the good bleeds. Zeal for the good bleeds. So let's look at verses 1 through 9. Commands for mature and free living. Living. And there's going to be three different paragraphs here and three different people that Peter has in focus. And I want you to catch those as I read here. All right. So <clears throat> verse one, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And you are her children if you do good and don't fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Man, I wish I could go through all. I mean, it's chock full of stuff and I have cut a ton out of what I wanted to say so that I could just try to stay focused on these things. I mean, every verse here is replete with with just a ton of information and I, I don't have time to go through it all. But we see here, first, this first paragraph, he first commands wives to be subject to their own husbands. And this is the same command that he gave to slaves, to be subject to their masters in verse 18 of chapter 2. And if you're like me, you hear that, and it's a little bit off-putting. In our culture, it's a bit off-putting to say, just like a slave... You should be subject to your own husbands. That that should sit not very well with you. And, And I hope that you feel that wrestling. Because in our culture, wives are not the property of their husbands. And Christianity does not teach that. Christianity does not teach that wives are property of their husbands. Simply because... Peter tells wives to submit to their own husbands doesn't mean that he's advocating for the culture's view that women are their husband's property. That's not what Peter's doing. Peter's not saying, yep, I agree with that. No, he's saying be subject to every human institution. Remember what he said? He said that in chapter two. That's why I spent so much time on that context, because that's what people do, unfortunately. Unfortunately. You see a lot of folks that are taking this verse out of context and during the the pre-Civil War era in the United States, people were taking the previous paragraph out of its context. Really behooves us to understand the context of why these things. Be subject to every human institution so that, what's the purpose? So that they can see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. That's why I spent so much time on that context. Be subject for the Lord's sake. That's the undergirding principle. That, that's how we live our lives. We, we have a north star who say, who say that you may be over me, but you are not ultimately over me. See, during Peter's day, this was a human institution. And for the sake of the wives' well-being, it would have been foolish... For him to turn the tables at this point to say, hey, you know what? Wives, rebel against your husbands because you're just as equal, which is true in God's sight. They are just as equal. So it wouldn't have been wise for Peter to say, just do away with all of this. Because if they had done that, they'd be begging on the streets. They'd be hungry. They'd be starving. It wasn't like the world in which we live in where a woman could go get a job in the workplace. That just did not happen. And so out of care and love for the wives and the women in the institution, Peter says, be patient. Be patient. Take the long view. Take the long view, the revolutionary long view, and be gentle. Right? See, that's what the Bible teaches us to do. is Don't look for the immediate satisfaction all the time right now, as though this life is all that matters, but take the long view in your obedience in pursuing and being zealous for the good. For one, this command that Peter gives to wives is revolutionary. The sheer fact that Peter is speaking to wives, that's revolutionary, that he's talking to them. He's saying, you can reason, because at that time it was believed that women couldn't put two and two together. But Peter's saying, no, 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 no. you all have gotten it wrong. And implicitly in what he's doing by speaking to the wives, he's turning that over on its head. He's saying, no, no, no. Listen to this. See, Peter fixes his gaze and looks at these women and treats them as equals. He elevates them to the status of fellow image bearers. He talks to them and he appeals to their reasoning faculties, doesn't he? He says, be subject so that. Be subject so that. That is a reasoning faculty. And he's saying, you all are capable of doing this. I know that you are. The world around you says that you're not, but I know that you are. So do this for the Lord's sake. Secondly, though, we see that this is not a call for women to kowtow to every man in the world. Notice, be subject to your own husbands. Wives are not called to submit to all husbands, to all men. Rather, this falls in line with Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 5, doesn't it? Where Paul tells us that the purpose of marriage is to reflect Christ's love for his bride, the church. And then that Christ, the, the, the church is to submit to Christ. There's a greater reality at play here, and Peter is pushing wives to see that. That how you treat your husband is reflective of how you treat Christ in one way. Don't, go, don't push that analogy too far. It's not where I'm going with that. Then thirdly, within this same command, I want us to notice this. The point is to win the unbelieving husband to the beauty and power of the gospel. That's the point. That's why I spent so much time in chapter 2 already, was to show that the point of all of this is so that unbelievers, so that the foolish will be silenced. See, what's at stake here is the eternal souls of people. Wives, you are free, but don't use it as a cover up for evil. Fear God. That's, you can hear him almost pleading with them. Fourth, and again, I'm still just going through this command. I want to make clear, I'm just dissecting out what these commands mean in the biblical context when Paul, I mean so when, when Peter says, be subject to your own husbands. It says fourth, here, the winning is done through a disposition reflective of Jesus. You may have may have missed that, but the gentle and quiet spirit is the same that we read about when Jesus describes himself. See, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, So Peter is saying, stop looking around at what the world values, at its value structures as though you're not valuable. He says, No, 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 in God's sight you are valuable. You are an image bearer, but by being gentle and lowly of heart like Jesus, he's calling these wives to be like Jesus, your unbelieving hu- husband can find rest for his soul. Easy to, it's, it's really easy, right? You see, you see all of these things, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, it's really easy, easy to get gussied up. It's really easy to put, be fancy on the on the outside, but it's hard work to cultivate the soul. And that's what Peter is not letting them get away with. And, and and this is not saying that it's bad to put on mascara. This is not saying that it's bad to put your hair up in a ponytail. That's not what Peter's saying. But he's saying, don't be so overwhelmed by that. Because that's what the culture was saying too. Is all, all you're meant to be is a pretty trophy for your husband. He's saying, no, 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 no don't Don't be satisfied with just that. Don't let the culture define who you are, that all you are is a trophy. No, 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 no. Don't do that easy work. Do the hard work of cultivating your own soul. Fifth, this is not a call for wives to remain in abusive marriages. Unfortunately, people have taken this passage to mean that there is some kind of sadistic honoring of Jesus to remain in an abusive marriage. It's not true. You must read this admonition in light of the larger biblical teaching on marriage, particularly as Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7. So we've been given a whole Bible. You read it in context with all of the Bible and where there's things that aren't as clear, you put it with things that are clear. And so what, is, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 14? You don't have to go there, but he, he's basically saying that a wife may separate from her husband if he has abandoned her, if he if he has not given obligations of, of uh, what he's supposed to be as a husband, if the unbelieving husband doesn't want to be with her. She's free. She's free to go. So a wife must not submit to her husband in anything. Let me make this clear. In anything that dishonors God. For her true husband is the Lord. Rather, the purpose of living, so, the purpose of this kind of living is so that others might be one to see that 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 your 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 husband your true husband is the Lord. Those are heavy teachings, heavy heavy things to be said to the wives. And you you read that in our cultural context right now, and you're like, oh, I don't, I'm not calling my husband Lord. Well, you don't have to. Okay, he's using that as a context. And again, I can't tease everything out, but I tried to with five different ways that that this passage has been taken out of context and and inappropriately. But I can't stay there. So. Sorry, let's go on to verse seven, because I know that you wives have been itching for us to get to verse seven because the teaching is just as hard for the husbands, isn't it? He comes with this scathing command to husbands in verse seven. Look at it. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Don't this doesn't give husbands the license to boss their wives around. Live with your wife in an understanding way. How do you live with your wife in an understanding way? You ask her questions and you listen to her. That was was totally not expected in his cultural context. Again, I'm talking about gentle revolution here. So husband, you need to do the harder work of living with your wife in an understanding way. Do you understand your wife? Have you asked her any questions of what makes her afraid? What gets her really joyful and happy about life? When was the last time you sat down and looked at your wife in her eyes and focused? Spent time listening rather than telling her everything that you think. How do you understand you listen? Be quick to listen, slow to speak. And he says that husbands are to treat their wives as the weaker vessel and don't let that don't let that confuse you. Don't let that don't don't think it's like a, a paper plate, like bending under the weight of a, you know ten pounds of barbecue or something. You know it's, this is not the picture here. It's not a weaker vessel like oh she's gonna break and she's got to be really gentle. She can't do any no no no. This is a weaker vessel like fine china. That that's how this context rolls out more is that you should treat your wife. As a fine piece of china. And what do you do? You have a special cabinet for fine china, don't you? You bring it out on special occasions. You you don't just slop a whole bunch of nasty food on there. You actually put nice food. You, You feed with good food on fine china. And so you husbands are to treat your wife in that kind of way. With that kind of tenderness. With that kind of understanding. With that kind of servanthood. See, the point of this is that our homes would be reflections of Christ's love for his church, as I've already mentioned from Ephesians 5. But very practically, how peaceful and beautiful it is when you step into a home where a husband and wife are not nagging, are not bickering, are not pointing out each other's faults. Have you ever stepped into a house like that? I venture to say you, you've you seen it maybe on TV, maybe in real life, but how refreshing is it when the husband defers to the wife and when the, when the wife defers to the husband, when they are both looking out for each other, mutually loving one another, mutually submitting to one another. It's a beautiful picture. When they are on the same page in their union, when it's not like, well, this is his thing and I'm just going to support him and I really don't want him to do it, like... That doesn't glorify the Lord as much as, yes, we are in this together. That's the kind of picture that that Peter wants you to have, is that husbands and wives, submit, subject yourself, love, understand, and serve. Because there's more at stake here than just peace and, uh, and joy in our homes. There's actually an, a watching world that is looking at your home and my home to say, is that the kind of home that looks differently than the the world that is full of people that say that God doesn't exist and I'm going to live my life as I want to. Does, Does your home look differently than your neighbor's home that doesn't fear God? And so we come to this last paragraph, this last set of commands in verses eight through nine, where he says, finally, all of you, all of you have unity of mind. All of you be humble. Because after all, if you want an amazing marriage, it's not by reading another book. It's not by going to another marriage conference. Those are helpful. In fact, we had a marriage conference here for that very purpose. Those are helpful. But you're not going to have an amazing marriage by constantly talking about how to have an amazing marriage. That's not how it happens. If you want an amazing marriage, then you need to be an amazing child of God. That's the point of verses 8 and 9. All of you, every single one of you, slave, master, wife, husband, be humble. Be humble. If you want a great marriage, if you want a great life, be humble. Be humble. Have unity of mind, have sympathy, have brotherly love, a tender heart. We get so ramped up about Wanted to be a better Christian in this area of my life and that area of my life, when in fact, we're missing the very undergirding thing of being subject to the Lord, of intimacy with Jesus, of humility, of calling to mind what did Jesus tell you to do? Don't repay evil for evil, but bless instead of curse, so that you may receive a blessing, a blessing from God. It's not rocket science, but it's it's hard. It takes blood, sweat, and tears. That leads us to our second point. Zeal for the good bleeds. Remember, the main point is be be zealous for the good like Jesus. And this is how we are to be zealous for the good in, in, our, in our daily conduct, our interactions with people in the most intimate setting of our lives, our homes. Uh, it's unfortunate to say that in our homes there's the most strife because we're the most comfortable with our husbands and our wives. We're the most comfortable with our children. And, and too often times when the doors are closed, there's strife. Peter's saying, no, 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 no. Let Jesus there too. It's hard work. Because zeal for the good bleeds. That's our second point. Look at verses 13 through 22. I'm sorry, look look at verses 10 through 22. For, that tells you that this is the ground, this is the undergirding reason why he's given all these commands in the first nine verses. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 4. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, uh, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience." Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, for the sake of time, I don't have time to go through all of those strange things that Peter's saying at that last part of the last paragraph. Where he talked about Noah and baptism. I don't have time to talk about that. I'm not I'm not uh, getting squirrely and, and getting scared of it and running away. No, no, no. I'm gonna do a video. One of my meditations with Mateo on YouTube, and I'll send that link out. Because it's really important to understand what he's saying. In fact, that that serves as the supporting structure, doesn't it? He starts in verse 18, is the real ground on which 13 through 17 reside. And then he goes on to develop that more through explaining Noah and the flood and then baptism. So what in the world is he talking about I hope you feel that. I hope you you don't just want to gloss right over that and move on to the next chapter. No, no, that's really important. And so I'm going to deal with that in a video, and I'm not going to be able to deal with it now because it's going to take another 15, 20, 30, 40, maybe an hour. I don't know. It's going to take a while to be able to unpack all of the history of interpretation of that, and then how uh, he's using that to support his argument. So, with that being said, let's go to verse 10. Verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12 is a quotation from Psalm 34. And just a parenthesis here. Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Let me just read the... um, Yeah. uh, Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. If if you remember in in the canon, uh, David started acting crazy before Abimelech. And uh, I think that's instructive for us. Uh, It's instructive for us because the Christian life looks crazy. It looks mad. It looks weird. It looks so much so that a Philistine king would say, get out of my presence. You are crazy. Why would you ever do that? And so I think that's instructive because it's been argued, and I think this uh, commentator is right, that Psalm 34 actually informs almost all of the ethics, the, the conduct that Peter talks about in his first letter. So you'd do well to go to Psalm 34 uh, later on today and just spend, just read it out loud. Psalm 34, read the whole thing. I think it will bless your soul to do that. And I think you'll begin to hear some things and some themes that Peter is weaving into this without explicitly saying. But here he's explicitly quoting Psalm 34. And, and we start to hear this, the, the, what Jesus teaches, Right? This hard teaching that Jesus gave us in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. See, at the heart of this quotation, at the heart of this quotation, you see in verse 11, Let him turn away from evil and do good. If you want to see long life and good days, then turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and... And pursue it. And as we consider what God has called us into as his priests, we're not called to simply wish for a better world. We're not called to just simply pray and say, God, would you please, would you please just stop that the the evil in the world? No, he's saying here, let him seek peace and pursue it. This word seeking is like plotting. Like you're you're sitting down with a blank piece of paper and you're plotting. What are you going to do to seek peace? How are you going to bring Shalom into the world? In fact, this is the same word that Peter later uses in chapter 5, and which we'll hear in the benediction, is that Satan is plotting, seeking someone to devour. So so Satan is on his his, uh, hindquarters getting ready to pounce. Are you on your hindquarters ready to pounce and seek peace? To look in the world and say, man, this this stinks. This world is broken. And instead of complaining about it, going and seeking peace and pursuing the shalom that God has called you as his priest to do. And then he says, pursue it. And This is the same word, the same word that talks about Saul persecuting the church. He was like a ravenous beast. He, he would not let go of the church. And he was he was on the prowl himself. Is that how you're pursuing peace in the world? It's not the way I typically pursue peace, and I, it's, it's, it's an indictment on me. That, that Peter says, Are you seeking peace? Are you pursuing it? Are you plotting? Are you looking at the world and saying, God has put me in this world so that I can affect change, so that I can bring the shalom that was there, the Sabbath rest that we looked at from Genesis, right? We are called to proactively pursue that peace. Not sit back and wait for somebody else on a white horse to show up and do it. And in case we miss it, Peter goes further to say in verse 13, he says, In case you missed what that main point is in Psalm 34, let me say it again in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If You're zealous for the good. What do you think it means to be zealous for the good? No, honestly, what what do you think it means to have zeal, a jealousy for the good in the world? The good and the beautiful. What do you think it means to seek peace and to pursue it in your life? I've kind of given you a little hint of what I think it means. But you hear Peter saying this and, and are you feeling the weight of that to say, I want to be that kind of person. I want to love love life and have long days. I, I want to, I want that to whoever desires to love life and see good days, I want that to be true of me. I want I want to see that happen. Well, quite easily it's first, like I said with a blank piece of paper, just sit down, start taking an inventory of your life. What do you do day to day? Taking an assessment well, on Mondays, well, in, in normal in normal circumstances, on Mondays I take my daughters to basketball practice. Well, there are people there that could uh, could stand to to be loved, could stand to be listened to and understood. Well, then on Tuesdays I I go to swim practice. On Wednesdays I'm hanging out, watching TV. You know, taking an inventory of your life and and saying, am I seeking peace and am I pursuing it in my own life? very indicting and it's painful and it's sweat and tears because if we're serious about submitting ourselves to God's word then we need to be serious about taking an inventory of our own lives see the one who creates the shalom we long for in this world that is what is to be our banner over our lives to be the ones who bring that shalom blessed are the shalom makers for theirs is the kingdom of God Blessed are those who are the peacemakers, are the ones who don't wait for peace to happen, but make it happen. And the sooner we grasp our calling as priests for God, so that when we pray, your kingdom come, like we did a moment ago, "Your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the lights go on, don't they? The lights go on so that we begin to realize when we ask for God to give us our daily bread so that we might have strength to go out and be the agents of change in the world. To make that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, a reality in the world. See, ultimately, ultimately, this work of bringing the perfect shalom does not rest on you and me. Let me just say that. Ultimately, God will have to bring the new heavens and new earth, but we can bring foretastes of it. We can bring little appetizers of the new heavens and new earth, that great banquet in which Jesus will come and eat with us and which we'll celebrate in a moment. But our calling now, our calling now is to point to that day. Is to be agents of such divine activity in the world. And you see this, don't you, in verses 13 through 17. I'm not going to walk through it here. But we are told to do good in the face of evil. We're told that we are to have an answer for the joy that is within us. Because why? The, the onlooking world will see your conduct and say, what? Why are you acting like that? Why do, you, why do you turn the other cheek? Why do you bless instead of curse? Why don't you cut that person off that cut you off? Why, why do you act differently? Well, you're to have an answer for the joy that is within you. Remember what we looked at last week from the guy who was born blind? I'm telling you, it's it's helpful to know some apologetic pieces, but do not get all hung up in your wheels because you don't have all the answers to all the apologetic arguments. I promise you, the greatest testimony, the greatest apologetic that you can give is for the hope that you have within yourself. The greatest hope that you can give, the greatest apologetic, is to share the hope that you have within. Yeah. Sure. Hmm. But then we we see here, right, in our being zealous for the good and the beautiful in the world and bringing peace, you would think like you would think like that would that would the world would say yes, thank you so much. And and, and the world does celebrate that. The wor- world is not totally dark. That's not, that's not the world that we see in the Bible. So the world does celebrate when people make peace and pursue it. That is good. But when you start to push against the comforts of this world, when you start to push against the ease and the self-congratulatory living that our culture is so accustomed to and actually longs for, when you are humble instead of proud, when you point to others instead of yourself, the world's going to think you're weird. And in fact, we see here, Peter says you're going to suffer. And he says what? It is better, verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You might die, but that is better because you don't ultimately die, do you? You might. You might suffer. But what does he say in verse 13? He says, is, who's going to harm you? Ultimately, you will not be harmed, even though you can be harmed. Right? This is the picture that he's saying. You have to live your life in light of a different sun than the world lives. See, we're trying to push against that tide, and the world's not going to like it. They're gonna not, not going to like humble people. I promise you. But at bottom of all of this, this is where we're going to end. At bottom of all of this is verse 18. How are we to be humble? How are we to be subject? How are we to live in an understanding way? We look to Jesus like we always do. We look to him, right? Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We can be zealous for the good because he was first zealous For us, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this hard but this very good word to us that we are to be zealous for the good just like Jesus, but we know that we fail and we falter and we fumble in life. Because ultimately it doesn't depend upon us, but we can be the priests that point to the high priest, Jesus, and say that he has perfectly brought that shalom. He says, come to me and find rest for your souls. Find shalom, find peace, find rest, find Sabbath rest in me. And that's who we point to in our living and in our suffering and in our dying. Make us those kind of people who look to someone else other than ourselves to fulfill what only you can fulfill. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.